Exodus chapter 14 tonight. As we turn there, uh, next Sunday, it'll be our joy to have uh, Dr. K.P. O'Hannon, president and founder of uh, Gospel for Asia, is going to be here teaching the morning and the evening services. And um, so we're looking forward to that. If you, if you came in, you should have gotten one of these flyers here for filling out in the back and, and all to get a, fr- a free copy of his uh, book, Revolution and World Missions, which really did create a revolution in world missions and uh, really important reading for every Christian. And uh, you can d- fill that out, detach it, and then pick up a free copy of his book and read it this week and be you know, kind of prepared for next week. Even if you don't read it, you'll be prepared for next week. But that's available there. Just so you know, you know we get uh, folks that are here in the evening, but not in the morning uh, they you fill this out you wonder what's going to happen to your name telephone number address email and all well they send it to us and we just start hitting you for money no that's not what happens on on that it's the new us but um, they 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 handle the information with strict confidentiality what it means is they will send you one copy of their magazine send magazine and uh, also a follow-up letter on that. If you do not respond to them, their computer will automatically drop you from their uh, list. And the Send Magazine, tremendous in keeping us informed on what the Lord is doing uh, in India, but also in the larger 1040 window there of, of missions in that part of the world. So take advantage of that opportunity. Leland concert coming up. Lots of flyers out there to grab and invite people uh, with and, and give to folks. And so... Uh, grab a pile of them and put them in your car and in your wherever that you're uh, able to run into people and stuff and, and uh, invite them to the concert. All right, now, Exodus chapter 14. Let me get situated here just for a moment. Get things, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then do the final thing that means the least of all, stop the stopwatch. There we go. At least I know how long I've gone over. <laughs> well, by the time we come to chapter 14, the children of Israel have only very recently been redeemed from Egypt. The exodus by God's strong right arm and all, He has delivered them from the bondage of Egypt. And it represents our salvation. Uh, it speaks of in the, in the New Testament, Jesus is our Passover lamb. And my, what a strong right arm it took for him to deliver us out of sin and death and hell and the grip of the devil and all. But he is able to do it. So they've been just recently delivered from that. God told them to establish two memorials so that they would never forget this great event. And uh, we have two memorials too, don't we? In the New Testament, we have the memorial of the Lord's Supper, reminding us of the sacrifice that was required for our salvation, and then also uh, water baptism, that again is an, uh, you know, a, a uh, physical representation of a spiritual reality that's happened in our life, but a celebration of how God lifted us up out of uh, our deadness in sin and didn't just forgive us but brought us up uh, out of that grave in order to live a resurrection life by the power of His Holy Spirit. Well, the two uh, kind of ordinances or memorials that He had, gave to the children of Israel was one, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And uh, they would always remember the Exodus through that. And then also, 
the requirement for them to redeem their firstborn sons and uh, their firstborn among the animals. And it would constantly, through their history, until God changed some things by substituting the Levites and some different things in the course of their history, remind them of that final great plague that was uh, inflicted upon Egypt in order to secure their release. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi uh, Hehiroth between Migdal and the sea opposite Baal Zephon, and you shall camp before it by the sea. And so uh, a lot of cities are named here. Uh, some of them the, the, we don't have any sure idea of exactly where they're located. Here's the big thing about verses 1 and 2. And what verses 1 and 2 communicate is a really big thing concerning this event in chapter 14. And here's what it is. When they find themselves, where they find themselves now in this place, and Pharaoh and the whole Egyptian army bears down on them in order to take them back into captivity by whatever means of, of slaughter is necessary to do it. When they hit this trial, they are right in the middle of the will of God. They have been directed, verse 1, Lord spoke to Moses, they have been directed to put to camp right there at the edge of the sea in that place. And so there they are, right in the middle of God's will. Now, I'd, I'd repeat it with some regularity because I need to be reminded of it with some regularity. I am always kind of tending toward the idea that when I'm in the middle of God's will, it's going to mean I'm sitting in a lazy boy chair somewhere with um, the Golden State Warriors beating the Dallas Mavericks and people are bringing me hot dogs and associated sport food to eat and it has no effect upon my health and those kinds. It's all just rosy, it's easy, I'm in God's will, I mean there are no problems, no trials and then as soon as things turn and wow, what in the world is this going on? The first thing I can sometimes doubt is in, my, in the will of God. No, there are trials. Well, there are big trials right in the middle of, of God's will. But he uses them to teach us something. He's a, quite a teacher, isn't he? Uh, I don't, uh, sometimes I wish, Lord, do we have to get an advanced degree in this particular issue? Can't I just get it, like graduate from elementary school on, um, on that? No, he's a good teacher. For Pharaoh, God says, I'm going to put you right here in this place, and here's the reason. For Pharaoh, and here he is, they, the, Pharaoh in Egypt hardly dried their tears over the death of their firstborn. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, when they see where I've get, gotten you to camp, they are bewildered by the land, the wilderness has closed them in, and then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And so he said, I'm going to put you here in this place, not because it's a real smart idea. I mean, you wouldn't want to put yourself there, uh, unless you had God behind you. But you do have God behind you, and I'm going to put you there. Because Pharaoh's going to look at where you camp, and they're go he's going to consider it a blunder. 
that they have gotten out into the wilderness, they don't know their bearings, they're just a pack of slaves, and uh, they are just ripe to be taken captive again. They've, they've entrapped themselves. They, they, they're good slaves, but they don't know how to wander around in the wilderness, and now this is the perfect chance for us to go back and, and take them into bondage uh, once, once again. And so it's interesting that God is, is using Pharaoh's uh, own evil heart to lead him into a trap. And, and what Pharaoh doesn't know, and, and the people that want to wipe out God's people all through history don't know, is that, or they continually forget, is that these people, we have a God who is looking out after us. And, and so he's going to take it and say, I'm doing this, this is how he's going to view it, and he's going to come after you once again, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So Moses took the children of Israel and they camped in that place. Now you would think that Egypt would know that the, <laughs> that the Lord is I am the Lord by this point. But they still don't. They still don't. They still, they're going to see him over there, look like they're trapped over there, forget all ten of those plagues and think we can go and grab these people and, uh, you know, just whoop on them, uh, uh, you know, for another 400 years to keep our economy uh, uh, propped up. But the Lord is, we're going to find out the Lord is very committed to protecting his people, both then and now. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of, Egypt, of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people, and they said, why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So they're going to go uh, after uh, the children of Israel uh, for the sole purpose of, we lost a bunch of slave labor. That, that we liked, we've enriched ourselves off of it. Hardly a, a kind, a, any kind of a noble reason, as if there could be one for uh, enslaving them. But this is their motivation, very poor motivation for going after them to, uh, to uh, um, enslave them once again. And so he made ready his chariot. He took his people with him. Also, he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. 600 chariots. Now you take 600 chariots, put them out there on Pellendale, where you couldn't. Well, maybe. All right. So what are we going to do? We'll just say Pellendale this way. So here you are. You're between 2 and 3 million slaves. You have no weapons. You left with what you could carry and you got... You got some food and you're happy with that. And your moms and dads and your grandparents and all of this and you're with your children and they're going to look up and they're going to see a wall of 600 chariots coming at them. In ancient warfare, if you had a cavalry of 600 horses and they would head into an infantry line, that bodies would fly in all directions. I mean, it would be the deciding factor in, in a battle to have that kind of heavy horse, heavy cavalry uh, in, a, in a battle. You just, nobody could hold a line uh, against them. Uh, I don't know what you would multiply it by in terms of chariots. A, a line of chariots, however, 600 wide or maybe so many hundreds wide, but so many deep, just uh, coming into... Uh, a, a line of trained infantry, again, you would just have pieces of bodies going all over the place. And here you've got 600 chariots that are going to line up against 
two to three million slaves. I mean, they don't even know what infantry is or how to devise some kind of a plan against it. I mean, it is just your, your, world, your worst nightmare in terms of a trial for where they are at that point in time. And the Lord hardened the, the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with boldness. And so the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh. And then if you think the chariots wasn't bad enough, his horsemen, he also brought regular cavalry with him and his army. He backs all of it up by the uh, Egyptian infantry. And they overtook the children of Israel camping uh, by the sea. This gives new meaning to camping, doesn't it? So there they are camping by, uh, by the sea of Pi Hehiroth before Baal Ziphon. And so there they are, and, and uh, they're coming with all of these uh, chariots and all of this weaponry and all. They finally catch up to them in this place. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. Now put yourself in their shoes. How um, far would your heart sink when you see that? You're just going on about your business. You know, God, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Beat them, bust them. That's our custom. Go, Yahweh, beat them. You know, they've just come out. I mean, just one, this is power, the whole thing. And I mean, they're uh, is, it just as spiritually high as can be. And someone looks over and sees this in the distance. And then all of a sudden, they all see it. In, in the distance. And when they lifted up, they saw it, and so they were, and, and wonderfully put, very afraid. Maybe you're very afraid tonight, facing something as a child of God. They were not just afraid, they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out immediately to the Lord. And, and so they, they recognize the vulnerability of their position now, and the light of this Egyptian army that's coming uh, against them, and, and their position is very weak. They, in front of them is uh, the Red Sea. Behind them is the Egyptian army. To one side of them is a mountainous uh, kind of region, and to the other side of them is desert. Now, if, if you're a 24-year-old male cross-country runner, you have no chance of outrunning that army that's going on. You can't move that group of people very quickly in any direction. They are absolutely trapped. They recognize the seriousness of, of their situation uh, immediately. They knew, <laughs> they knew that much. And all of this takes them completely by surprise. I mean, they thought, I, we've left Egypt. It'll be as simple as that. <laughs> and the lesson they're about to learn is that God can not only deliver us from Egypt, but he also has the power to ensure that we are not enslaved again. Uh, I think it's very important, especially when a person becomes a new Christian, to realize that the devil in, in Pharaoh is a type of the devil in the Bible, that he, God may force him to let you go in the name of Christ, and he must do that when you cry out to the Lord in faith. But it does not mean he will not come back with 
tremendous fierceness to try and take you captive once again. And sometimes the devil, quite a bit through history, has any, he has to learn once again concerning this individual that God is, that no temptation has overtaken us except it's common to man. God's either going to give us grace to get through that particular trial or temptation or he's going to make a way of escape. But this is, this is all type of, of the Christian life. This is what's happened to God's people all through the ages. And so they're terrified and then they cry out uh, to uh, the Lord. And so uh, they, as they're crying out to the Lord, obviously they, um, they don't have... It's not a tremendously faith-filled uh, prayer to the Lord because in the next verses we'll get to in just a second, they start to really tear in <laughs> to Moses. I mean, they're upset. It's kind of like, okay, let's pray and cry out in terror to the Lord and then let's kill the closest person that we can, that we can hold responsible for getting us into the middle of, of all of this. Now, it's amazing that they would do this so close after the plagues. I mean, they have seen God do for nine months, one plague after another, securing their release against impossible odds. And then they hit this trial... And they act like they have no history with God. They, they act like they're, they're learning about how powerful their God is uh, from the very first plague and, and, and starting all over. God gives us a history with him uh, in order that when we hit these big trials again, that we'll reflect upon that history that we have with him. And maybe that the Lord would speak to some of us here tonight. You're hitting something that's just like it's this big. Wow! And, and, all, and, and our reaction is like we don't have a history with God. You have a history with God. You just stop and, just stop and think. In fact, most of us hit trials in our life, and what God has already brought us through are, are very often much more difficult than what we're facing right now. And, and it's important just to pull back and remember what he's done for us. So you know, it isn't like, um, yeah, you know, I went through all those ten plagues and everything uh, just so that uh, I got you out of Egypt because I didn't want you to die there. I, I wanted you to be slaughtered on the shores of the Red Sea. But he hasn't taken us through all the things that he's taken us through, built in all the things that he's built in into our life, now to just have us be destroyed by the enemy of God's people or to be destroyed by a trial. Our history is supposed to count for something in that relationship with, with the Lord, and it's important that we, we allow it to. Now, the proper response in the light of the um, ten plagues that God had poured out on Egypt is that they would look over, look at those 600 chariots, all of the cavalry, all of the infantry, and go, dead ducks. They're all going to get wiped out. What are they thinking? They're crazy coming in. God's going to take all their heads off. What's this is ridiculous. In light of the history, but they don't factor their history in at all. So they're filled with, with all of this uh, fear. And then they start to cry out against Moses. You want know, to talk about a thankless job. Moses really had a thankless uh, job and a thankless uh, ministry. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Yeah, that's why I brought you out in the wilderness. Because there were no graves in Egypt. Why, yeah, you ought to. Come here, come here. 
So these guys are wise guys and how they're coming. To, why have you dealt uh, with us to bring us out of Egypt? Now, is that something? Why did you ever bring us out of Egypt? I said, wow. And they talk about, what have you done for me lately? I mean, that's astonishing is that. They're blaming him for having brought them out of Egypt like he did it. You know, like God didn't do it. Is this not the word? Didn't we try to tell you right from the beginning when you came and you met us there in Egypt, we told you, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians that we should die in the wilderness. And so they, they are expressing their regret. They're accusing him of wrongdoing. In their lives, they're expressing regret. Being a slave in Egypt was at least better than being dead out into the, the wilderness. And I mean, it's really stunning how, boom, they turn, they turn on them in, in that, that kind of a way. Now, the Lord is very, very patient with them, very patient with them. But he will not remain forever patient with them in this area of their murmuring, their complaining, their disputing. They're new believers. God puts up with a lot in that, that point in time. But he won't put up with it ultimately in a point in time where they should have grown past this and God will judge them ultimately for this kind of protracted uh, characteristic uh, of their life. And so they accuse him. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Now, that's a leader. That's a leader. One man stands up in the face of two to three million people worth of unbelief and fear, and he declares, do not be afraid. Now, uh, fear is very, very contagious. Very, very contagious. You, you, want to do, you want to sell a million tapes or CDs to a message, do one that just terrifies people over something. You want to sell something, you know, in terms of uh, even, you know, secularly, just terrify people in some kind of a way. You ever, you know, as a kid maybe sat around and you know, shouldn't have done it, but sometimes we did it, and you tell these scary stories, middle of the night, you know, and the rebobs and the the shoes on the top of the car, oh man, and everybody's terrified, you know, and every and all is contagious. But faith is contagious too. And it's very important in these kind of situations for the person who has faith to stand up and speak faith into the situation. God said, they had the word of God, God said, I am going to take you into the land of Canaan. And it is a land flowing with milk and honey. And when God says he's going to do something, he does it. And somebody needed to stand up and do that. Don't, don't be afraid of being called a goody two-shoes or, oh, look who's so spiritual and all this kind of a thing. We need to, uh, you know, stir up one another to faith and, and to good works by speaking the truth in these situations. Somebody needed to do it. Moses did it. And then he said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today, for the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more uh, forever. And the Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And so he tells them not only not to be afraid, but then to stand still. They're going to see a great victory, one great final victory over uh, the Egyptians. Now, one of the hardest things to do 
in a, a crisis like this is the very thing that Moses tells them to do. And what's that? Stand still. To stop being afraid and stand still right in the situation, the crisis that you're right in the middle of. Listen. When you and I are living a life of obedience to God, there is no safer place to be in all of the world, no matter what it looks like physically, no matter what it looks like outwardly. We can stand still in the middle of, of that particular uh, situation. And one of the things that's great about these kind of situations uh, very, very often is it's not like they had options. <laughs> you know? Sometimes those trials are as hard as they are, they're sometimes easier because the trial is so big, you're so apparently trapped that you can't really do anything. It, the, the whole thing so overwhelms your resources. You can't go forward. You can't go backwards. You can't go right. You can't go left. You just have to sit there and, and trust the Lord in the middle uh, of, of the situation. And, and, uh, uh, and, and it's a good place because God's always going to do something. When we're in a trial, because of our obedience to the Lord, you just wait. You, the end of the story is going to be a miracle. The end of the story is going to be a victory. He's going to bring glory to himself. Nobody is going to disprove God's word and his promises toward our life. But boy, does it, can it look miserable for a day or so or even longer. So this great promise that Moses gives to the people, reminding them of the promise of God and then adding revelation that God had also given to him. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? So apparently he had kind of gone into some prayer and all. And the Lord said, Listen, you know, we love prayer and everything, but there's a time to move here too. Let the children of Israel, uh, uh, tell the children of Israel to go forward. I just like that. I got that. I got that go forward. It's underlined in my Bible. No, the Bible didn't come with it underlined. I underlined it. And here's the point of that. The point is, is it has re-entered their mind because of the fierceness of the trial. They are entertaining thoughts of going back to Egypt. And God says, we don't do that. We go forward in this. My people move forward in these trials. We never think of going back to Egypt, back to the old ways, back to the old sins, back to the old bondages, and back uh, to the world. But lift up your rod, Moses, and stretch it out over your, uh, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. So there's that rod that he had and all just put it right over the sea. It's going to divide. Not only is it going to divide, I mean, talk about, I mean, it's really something how God does things. Um, you, you get the, uh, he could have divided the Red Sea and then made him just like slog through mud all night long. So now you're going to go through on dry land. Sometimes people get, and we'll get into it in, in just an hour or two. Um, where they talk about the, the fact that they didn't really go through the Red Sea, but it was some kind of a marshy area like that, and they slogged through about 18 inches of water. It's not what it says. It says they went through on dry land. 
And, and that's, that's how, how they did it. And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them, and so I shall gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots, and his horsemen. And then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, uh, and his uh, horsemen. So God is going to bring honor to himself by just publicly protecting his people in a way that will obviously go down in history here uh, by defeating an enemy that was trying to circumvent and and destroy his plan for his, his people. I'll tell you, that happens on an individual level as well as is on a, a national, you know, kind of large-scale uh, uh, means too. And the angel of God, who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. And so it, became, it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel, and thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. And so here they've got, uh, remember, they, they've got uh, as a means of God leading them through the wilderness, and also as a means of uh, affirming to them every day uh, His presence with them. There would be a pillar of cloud, a cloud that would lead them through the wilderness during the day. Well, shade's very important in that part of the world during the day. So that's how He would lead them during the day. If the cloud moved, they moved. If the cloud didn't move, they stayed. At night, you don't want a cloud because you can't see it. So there would be a pillar of fire. And if the fire moved, then that was God moving them someplace else. They would follow that. If the, if the pillar of fire didn't move, they would, uh, then they wouldn't move either. What God now does is in, in that pillar of uh, cloud and that pillar of, of fire, you, you have uh, you know, this confidence that in the people that God is leading us. But God doesn't just lead us. There are times where he has to protect us too. And so now that pillar of fire that represents the presence of the Lord and the cla- pillar of cloud comes in and becomes the rear guard. And it, right between, in the distance, in the, in the area that was between the Egyptians and between the children of Israel, boom, he camps right there. Nobody gets to my people but through me. Camps right there. Now the neat thing about it is that on the children of Israel's side, he, apparently the cloud comes in during the day because he's spoken of as a cloud coming in during the day. So it's, that, it's the cloud angle on the day. So it wasn't the nighttime, I think. So he, he camps there. But then as night starts to fall, he gives light over into the camp of the children of Israel and into the camp, uh, uh, military camp of the Egyptians, complete darkness. It's like they can't... They can't even, it's so dark they can't even see through enough to even think about a nighttime attack upon the children of, of Israel. So, you know, beautiful God and, and His uh, protection uh, uh, of them. And, and so there they are, all of that set up, and then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night. And so that's how he, you know, secured that, that flow in that direction. And he made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. And so here they go, supernatural event in human history. And so the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall. Not 18 inches, 
It was a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now that took faith. The writer of the book of Hebrews, when he in that great passage on the hall of faith, Hebrews chapter 11, he, he makes note of it. He said, by faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. So here you got, you didn't just see this every day, you got a wall of water on this side, and you got a wall of water. We don't know what kind of a distance. They got to get two to three million people across there in a night. On, on the other side, and you're going to walk your family into that. And then you're going to trust God to keep his word, to hold those walls of water up for you, you to get across. It took faith in order to do that. Now, this crossing of the, the Red Sea, Paul writes, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, of the fact that it symbolizes water baptism for us in terms of its typology for us in, in the, new, the new covenant. In other words, once we're saved... Uh, that is, on the Exodus, now we come to water baptism, and water baptism is this public identification with God that I'm going to obey Him no matter what He calls me to do, and I'm going to publicly identify with God and, ad and ad identify with His leading in my life for the rest of my life. That's exactly what they do by walking into that water. It took faith to do that. And, and I mean, it's to be commended. They had some faults here in all this, but it really is to be uh, commended. And the Egyptians pursued them, went into the, after them, pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. I mean, they just, as soon as that something lifts and they go after them now, wow, they just, they just head in and with all of their forces. And it came to pass in the morning watch, so just as the sun is starting to uh, give light upon the situation that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and he troubled the army of the Egyptians and he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. That, it, that does become a problem on that. So, you know, we, we look at the weaponry of the world and the whole thing and we're terrified or whatever kind of a deal God says... All right, we'll just, all right, wheels off. And then, I mean, uh, what is more useless than a chariot without wheels? I mean, now you've got to drag this thing around, and I, it, you know, so he, he just uh, gives them that sense that you guys are, gentlemen, you're in trouble uh, on things. And they took off... And he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, they got the message, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against uh, the Egyptians. And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians and on their uh, chariots and their horsemen. So he gives that, the commandment, and so Moses obeys him, stretches his hand out over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, all 18 inches, just kidding, just kidding on things, to its full depth, 
while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. And so the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. There was a, not one survivor of the army, but the children of Israel walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And so the Lord saved Israel that day out of the land uh, out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Poetic justice. Perfect justice. Pharaoh, children of Israel, ordered the death of the infant uh, Jewish boys uh, by water, by, by drowning. God just comes in wipes out their strong right arm, their ability to do that to anyone else again at this time in their, in their history. He just drowns the, the, the army. And I mean, you look at that um, as this destruction uh, comes in. And, and uh, I think even you know, recently in our own history, where you remember those, the, the videos and everything that came out, just the, the sheer power of water with the flood and then the tsunami, this water just comes in like whew, and just takes everything out. Very, very powerful. So here they are. Moses releases and, and, and all. And this water and just crushing power comes down upon them, man and beast, and, and wipes all of them out. Now, um, as the children of Israel see then the Egyptians dead on the seashore, I want to just take a moment to uh, talk about... Um, you know, a thing that I've heard about ever since I was a new Christian on this whole deal. And, and there is a group of people that look at this miracle of the crossing of the Red Sea and they say they don't like miracles, number one. And I, I'm a firm believer in, in the fact that if you can accept Genesis 1-1, everything else is a snap. One of the brothers here, John, he was showing me, I think he had gotten it as a present. It was a, this book just filled with pictures of um, outer space. Now, I, I think there's a better word for that, but that's, that's the word that you use when you've seen science fiction movies and stuff like that. So the whole, uh, well, call it the heavens, right? Okay, what's the right word? Did I hear something? The cosmos. Oh, I think I'm thinking about Sagan on all this. But anyway, you're right. You're right. So that whole thing out there, and you just see these incredible pictures of these, uh, you know, planets and stars and collections and, oh, man, just uh, breathtaking. God can create the heavens and the earth and speak them into existence. Part in the Red Sea is a snap. Just a snap, as we're going to see in just a moment in, in chapter 15, that um, he, when it describes his parting of the Red Sea with that east wind, it says it was the breath of his nostrils. That's what the wind was likened to. We think, wow, what kind of a wind did it take to make the water mount up like that and all? How hard was that? No harder than exhaling. It was as easy as breathing for God. It's a difficult thing to do at all for God. So once you realize how big he is, but, but they'll, sometimes they'll say, um, well, 
because the, uh, they don't like miracles, they say God didn't really take them across the Red Sea. He took them across uh, a kind of a swampy uh, region of, of the Reed Sea, and, uh, and the water's just about 18 inches deep, and, and they, they headed through there in kind of that low point swampy area out of Egypt. Now, the problem with that, the obvious problem with that, is you're not going to get away from a miracle because even then you got God drowning an entire army in 18 inches of water. That's not an easy thing uh, to do. We assume they could swim in those days on things and horses and the whole deal. So you're not going to get away from a miracle no matter how you want to in- interpret the thing and, and, and to, uh, to view it. But let's look at what God actually uh, declares uh, of the crossing and, and let's look at what uh, he says and let's look at what the eyewitnesses say uh, about all of this was it the Red Sea and a wall of water and all of that or was it this marshy thing notice in chapter 14 uh, verse 28 the water was deep enough to drown the Egyptian army in it and, and the animals notice in verse four, chapter 14 verse 30 we're told that when the bodies wash up, they wash up under the edge of a seashore, not at the edge of a, of a shallow swamp. Notice in, in 14, chapter 14, verse 22, we're told that when the children of Israel crossed uh, over across the Red, Red Sea, that there was a wall of water on, uh, on both sides uh, of them, and, and again, dry land that they were walking in, not slogging through some kind of, of a marsh. Now, in chapter 15, where there is a, somebody writes a worship song about this whole event, so you're talking about eyewitnesses who went through it, and then, you know, some, almost immediately after going through it, someone wrote a worship song uh, about it. You notice what they, they said uh, about it in, 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 in the song. In verse 4 of chapter 15, we're told that the water again was deep enough to drown in. In verse 5, that the water was deep enough uh, for it to cover the Egyptian army. Uh, in fact, deep enough for the Egyptian army to sink to the bottom of it like a stone. In uh, verse 8, we're told that the water stood up like a heap there in, in that uh, place. And then in verse 10, we're told that the sea covered them and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. That's fairly, fairly simple for me. So, so God knows what he did and here is his description and the description of the eyewitnesses related to that. Now why in the world is that important? Because this whole event is in the Bible for us not only for the children of Israel in that day but for God's people all through the ages so that we would know that we do not have a swamp God a reed sea God when we're in the middle of the kind of troubles that we find ourselves in but we have a red sea God who is able to do whatever he needs to do to be faithful to his good promises in our life. And don't let any pseudo-intellectual, all that, all that kind of stuff is, is just people who worship, they, they can't worship God yet, they worship their mind. And a mind is a terrible thing to worship. Because now, if God is smaller than my, my mind, then he's smaller than me. 
and, and thou he's not worthy of my uh, worship. Certainly not to call him God anyway. Don't let anyone rob you of, of the power of God and these events and all. God knows in the different things that we face in our pilgrimage from the time that we leave Egypt and we get saved till the time that we are home in heaven, that we need to have this kind of a confidence in God, and we should because that's the kind of a God that He is. Now, I remember reading years ago, and I just I loved it. There was a, a man, and I'm sure he's going to be with the Lord by now, but he uh, taught theology and uh, kind of a pastoral preparation in Princeton, at Princeton University, you know, way back when, when it was theological and, and producing, uh, you know, real men and women of, of God. Everything's become very liberal, uh, you know, in those Ivy League schools today, despite their, you know, Christian origins. Harvard, I mean, it's tragic. Uh, the, the, what it began as and what was intended for it and then what, it, what it's become and, and all. But, but here was a man and he would train these theological students to go out into their ministry, some as pastors, some as seminary uh, teachers and all kinds of, of different things. And uh, after these men would graduate, uh, they would sometimes be invited to come back to uh, Princeton and deliver a message from the Word of God. And, uh, and he would always go and listen to him once. He'd never listen to him twice. He'd listen to the former students one time. And when he was asked about it, why he only did the one time, he said, I come to see whether they're a big godder or a small godder, and then I know what will become of their ministries. That's all he needed to know is what was their view and their attitude toward God, and then the rest of the story would be written. We want to be big godders, because our God is very, very big, and He is able to do these kind of things uh, in, in our lives. Chapter 15, let me just go into the worship song that comes out of this before we uh, close here. Verse 31, actually, of chapter 14. And then, uh, thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, and so the people feared the Lord. So now they've returned to faith in God, and, uh, which is a good thing for them to do. They're learning. God's being very patient in His teaching of them at this time. And then they also believed uh, the Lord and His servant Moses. So um, he's... Uh, popular again for a month but uh, so this but such was his life and his calling so they they did recognize all right you know this this is further confirmation of of God's blessing upon this man as a leader and then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke saying and so it goes forth to to record the song that was sung soon as this event happens you know praise the Lord for worship leaders I mean some of us sit in an event like that occurs and will record it uh, some other artist might pull out a canvas and you know capture it that way somebody else would just you know make a three-point sermon out of it and a worship leader says somebody's got to make a song out of this I mean you just can't let something like this pass and not praise the Lord 
for what it is that he's done. We've got to lift some thanksgiving up here to the Lord and all. So somebody writes this song. It's the first recorded song in the Bible, and it is full of God. That's a good worship song. Forty-five references to God in these 18 verses. You can't, you can't fit more God into a song than that. But they just wanted to worship the, the Lord. Sometimes, I really obviously enjoyed the worship tonight, and I love all the folks that lead worship around here, and, and, uh, and I, I appreciate the fact that when they you know, search out worship songs and they're going to teach us new worship songs and all, that they're, they're, pick, they're choosing songs that lift the Lord up, they honor the Lord, you know, they give the Holy Spirit something to say amen to in, in our heart. And there have been times... You know, we're here or there or this or that, listening on the radio or something, and sometimes a worship song will be written, and it's got so much I, me, my, e, why, we, you know, and the whole thing. Hardly know that there's a God at all. I'm singing pretty much about myself and the whole thing and all. And I don't like songs like that. Like I'm just chock full. Papa Chuck! Chock full of the Lord and the things of the Lord. And that's what this song uh, is. It divides into two sections. The first 13 verses are talk about the, looking back on what God had just done, and then verses 14 through 18, it, it speaks about how that impacted their faith concerning the future. God did this great miracle now. We can trust Him to do great miracles in the future. See, they're learning. They're learning. So here's the, mirror, here's the song. And so they, they sang this song, I will sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider was thrown into the sea. Now that's, on, that's right there on a page. But they saw it. And two hours earlier, they thought, or at least one night earlier, they thought they were dead. And everything turned on God, God doing this. Very, very thankful. The Lord is my strength. So they praise him for the strength that he gives us and my song that is he's my cause for rejoicing and he has become my salvation he's the source of my survival i would have ne- we'd have never made it to today if if he wasn't also our salvation and that's true of us tonight too isn't it and he is my god and i will praise him my father's god and i will exalt him so they knew their fathers knew jehovah uh, yahweh uh, the lord and they had a relationship with him and now we're growing into a relationship with that same god the lord is a man of war and uh, uh, the lord is his name now people don't people they kind of politically correct environment and all this kind of stuff and and uh, you know you got Jesus with a little lamb and he's doing something like this in all the paintings in Europe you know and 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 he is a man of peace he's going to bring peace in this world but the Lord is a man of war too and until this world is under his control I don't have a problem with that I find a lot of peace in that and as long as there is a portion of this world that wants to kill Jews and Christians, Bible people, I'm happy for God to be a God of war, a man of war against them to, in order to protect us. 
Even as I saw in the news yesterday where some of the church burnings that are going on uh, have gone up recently up in Sacramento. What's up with that on things? So it's not just one group of people, but, but others. No, Lord, we're thankful that as, as they were thankful that you're a man of war, you know how to protect against the armies of this world and in the hands and control of the devil, a type of Egypt. And so Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. And your right hand, O God, O Lord, has become glorious in power. So now the celebration of, of God's power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You, shall, you sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And here it is. With a blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered uh, together. Just as effortless as breathing for him. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. And the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My, I, me, my, my desire shall be satisfied on, on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. I wonder where that, you know, sinking like lead comes from. <laughs> the origin in the Bible looks like. Huh? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Your hand stretched, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. And so you not only know how to redeem us, but you know how to protect the people that you've redeemed. Just like with us, you have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. And then now, as that praise for the past events, now they sing to the Lord as they're carrying it over. Wow, he, look at our history here. Uh, look, it, it's, it's, it impacted their faith now for the trials that they saw immediately ahead. And the people will hear, the people of Canaan, where they're going, and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of uh, Philistia, so Canaan and the surrounding areas. And then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. This news of, of the power of God exercised on behalf of the children of Israel, it will dismay those, those nations. And the mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord. Till the, you, the people pass over whom you have purchased. And you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. In the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. In other words, all right, we get it. You promised we're going there. We're going to get there. You know, message loud and clear, Lord. Uh, in about 30 days, they'll forget it again. 
and, and all. And so, but they're giving them praise right now. And then the, they declare, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. And so they praise him not only for what's immediately ahead for them, but then the fact that God is, is going to reign forever and, uh, and ever, his eternal reign. For the horses, now they kind of recap the event. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. And then Miriam, here's the song and all, Miriam the prophetess, first mention of a prophetess uh, in, in the scriptures, the sister of Aaron, she grabs a timbrel in her hand, and all the women, they went out with her with timbrels and with dances, and Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. And so, as was common in the ancient world, when the men would return uh, victoriously in battle, always you can imagine waiting back at home and all the women were, you know, uh, quite concerned about who was going to die, who was going to return. So whenever the men returned back uh, victorious, there would be this, I mean, just this gushing out celebration on the part uh, of the women for for the victory and the fact that all the men hadn't been slaughtered. So, in the, so the women kind of became the ones that praised the Lord in this way uh, after a battle. And so that's what they do. Now, I don't know what you picture in your mind. You know, there's Miriam out there and she's got things going and, and got everybody. And maybe there's about six of them and they're all in a circle kind of doing some Hebrew dance, you know, some kind of... We're talking about pretty good, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I hate the fact that I just, it just dawned on me we film uh, in the service and stuff. So, but they have, they, but they have uh, we're talking about uh, two to three million uh, men, women, and children, half of them women. So when she invites them out, and they, you're talking about thousands and thousands of women singing and dancing in celebration of victory. Now, I'd like a video of that. That would really be something. But just overwhelmed by what, what it is that God uh, had done for them. Beautiful, beautiful celebration. Well, we're this close. Okay. So Moses brought uh, Israel from the Red Sea. And uh, then they went out into the wilderness of Shur following that experience. They went three days into the wilderness. They found no water. So three days, no water, arid area pretty serious situation. And they came to Mara. Uh, when they came to Mara, they could not drink the waters of Mara because the waters were bitter, and therefore the name of the place was Mara, which meant bitter. So they get to this place, all right, water, and they go to take a drink of it, and they can't drink it because the water is bitter. So what do the people do? Well, Moses, we liked you 48 hours earlier, or three days earlier. The people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Like, that's his responsibility. But uh, that's the way it goes for Moses. And uh, so he cried out to the Lord concerning the situation. And then what did the Lord do? The Lord showed him, and, and notice it's in the singular, the Lord showed him a tree. 
And when he cast that tree, obviously under the Lord's direction, into the waters, the waters became sweet, and, and, and there he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them. And so he took the tree that God had shown him, threw it into the water, and the water not only became drinkable, but it became sweet. Now all these events are going to be pictures and types of, as again Paul brings out in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, types of our uh, types and shadows, foreshadows of our, our walk with, with the Lord. And in the course of our pilgrimage, doesn't matter who we are, doesn't matter what our calling is, doesn't matter how much we try to protect ourselves in this calling of uh, upon our lives as Christians, there are going to be things that happen to us in the course of our pilgrimage have the potential to make us bitter, potential to make us deeply bitter over what can, can happen. I mean, that's just part of the deal. And what's the solution to it? God showed Moses a tree, said, take that tree, that tree, that tree showed you a tree take that tree throw it into the bitter water and be made sweet and so it was and of course in the new testament twice the cross of jesus christ is referred to as a tree and as we throw that tree across into the bitter waters of our hearts from what someone has said about us or done against us or the injustice or the ten of them that they did to us or whatever it might be it has the power to make even that, that body of water, the deep streams of our lives, <clears throat> no matter how bitter they are, to make them not only drinkable again, but sweet again. Now that's important for a group of people who have what? Supposed to have a torrent of living water coming out of our innermost being. I don't want a torrent of bitterness. problem with bitter people is they, they're usually fairly vocal about it. They don't, they don't solve it. They don't resolve the situation. And so it's like it happened to them yesterday. Boom. Almost every time you talk to them, it's going to come up. If you, have, if you meet with them for two hours, that thing's going to come up. You, you ju- it's not a matter of if, it's just a ma- uh, 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 but when they're going to bring that thing up. And, and that's just the way that it is. And that's why Paul wrote, or the writer of the book of Hebrews, he warned about a root of bitterness being established in our lives because it ends up defiling Many And a bitter person doesn't really care how many people they defile with their bitterness very often, but God gets concerned about it. God gets very concerned about it because he doesn't want that to be an influence in, in, uh, in the body of Christ. So what's the solution to it? Add the cross. What's the cross a picture of? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. And the Bible talks about the fact that we are to forgive one another even as God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. Isn't that true? How much does he forgive you? Has anybody ever done, you know, anything? There may be one or two. I don't know what things, but it certainly isn't true of me. Um, You could take all of the things that people have done against me or said against me and uh, that I could have the... You know, if you want to be bitter, you can be bitter. You can find an excuse for it. I could find an excuse to live like that uh, tonight if I wanted to, to do that. But you could take all of that and put it on one side of the scale, and then on the other side of the scale, put all of the things that I've done against God that could make him bitter, that he could refuse to forgive me for. I'll tell you, there's no comparison between the two. He forgives me way more than he asked me to forgive other people 
And that's what he always is reminding us of, the great, great price that he was willing to pay, the great amount that he has forgiven us. And then he asks us to forgive others in the light of, of the greatness of, of that sacrifice. And, and so it's the only way to keep from becoming a very, very bitter person, even in this wonderful thing called the body of Christ. And so a beautiful picture of, of that aspect uh, of things. And so there we're told in verse 25, he made a statute and an ordinance for them. There he tested them in this way and he said, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases which you, uh, on you which I have brought on the Egyptians. So talking about diseases that God had brought upon the Egyptians because of sin and, and disobedient on the part of the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you, Jehovah Rophe, He is the one that heals us. And so uh, obeying God's word is what, one of the things he's saying is obeying God's word is healthy. You notice that? Just go to the Centers for Disease Control website and just scroll through. I mean, all the diseases, all the coming diseases. All, well, don't do it. No, don't do it. Don't bother. But I mean, you just look at how much of what's floating around in the world and all, how much of it is in the world on the basis of disobedience to God and disobedience to His Word. And obedience to His Word keeps us safe and it keeps us healthy. In, in a world that is, is uh, very, very uh, messed up in that way. So obeying God's word is healthy. And then they came to uh, Elim, where there were 12 wells of water. Yes! And 70 palm trees. Lots of water, lots of shade in the desert. Okay, forget about the promised land. Let's camp here. No, but God knows we need rest once in a while. So he allows us into those places, and just like he took the disciples aside for rest, though the multitudes followed them and they never got that rest, but he still wanted them to have that. And so they camped there by the waters, being refreshed now, regrouping then for the next, uh, develop, God's next uh, event in their life to develop their faith. Let's stand together. And if the worship team would come forward, that would be wonderful also.